Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of our series. Welcome to Tech Unmanned, a CSIS podcast where we bring together technologists and policymakers to discuss the intersection of defense, national security, and emerging technologies. I'm Caitlin Johnson, Deputy Director and Fellow with the Aerospace Security Project. And I'm Rose Butcher. I'm an Associate Fellow with the Defense Industrial Initiatives Group. I am so grateful to have Rose with me for this last and final episode. Honestly, all this is really bittersweet. It is our last episode of season one on Tech Unmanned. And to be honest, I am working on figuring out the logistics for season two. So it's likely, but not definite. Please send me a message on Twitter or to my email, which you can find on the CSIS website, but it's also kjohnson at csis.org. Easy to remember. With anything that you really liked about the season or new ideas for a second season, I would love to just know what y'all want to learn about. Rose and I recorded this episode with some fantastic guests who we'll introduce to you in a second, but there were a couple acronyms that we caught, and so we want to define them for you before we jump into the discussion. So Rose, what is an OTA? So OTA means Other Transaction Authority, and it is a different purchase vehicle for the government. If you'd like to know a lot about this, DIG puts out an annual report on OTAs, but very briefly put, it's, a, it's an Other Transaction Authority. So if you're interested in OTAs and DIG's annual report, we'll put it up on the, the Tech Unmanned page. Caitlin, another acronym I heard was PPBE. I also said this one. So the PPBE is the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution process. It is basically how DOD funds itself. It's how the government builds a budget for the, you know, the fiscal years ahead gets it passed through Congress and then and then into the hands of the people who actually spend the money, like the Navy. And then I also heard at the very end, ROI. So ROI, um, or return on investment, is a really common way to express how much you're getting back for the money you put into something. Pretty simple. Hi, everyone. Welcome to what is going to be the final episode of Tech Unmanned season one. I am just thrilled that we have an awesome pair of guest experts to round out the season. I know we're going to learn a whole lot and really, I think, tie together a lot of these pieces that we've seen in previous episodes, as well as in our most recent two episodes, talking with the Army and the Air Force. So I'm really excited to now talk about the Department of the Navy. And to do so, we have Ms. Joan Johnson. She is the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Navy's Research, Development, Test, and Engineering. Hi, Ms. Johnson. Hey, Caitlin. How are you today? Thanks so much to you and Rose for hosting us. Really appreciate being here. Thank you for calling in. And we also have Captain Ben Buskirk. He is the director at Naval X. Hey, thank you for having us. Um, it's really awesome to be here. Uh, live from Alexandria. Thank you. 
Awesome. Well, I can't imagine like two better people to talk to about what the Navy is up to when it comes to emerging technologies. You know, on the Tech Unmanned podcast, we've covered deep dives into some of these technologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning, hypersonic weapons, you know, quantum and biotech. And then we've also done a couple more topical areas looking at software acquisition and the STEM workforce. And then, as I said, we we finally wrapped up with these, I think, really critical department overviews where we've talked with people from the Air Force and the Army and, of course, now the Navy to look at how the department approaches these problems. And I think it would be really great if we could start maybe with a like an elevator pitch about yourself and your, you know, your organization or role in the Navy. So, Ms. Johnson, could you kick us off? Great. Thank you. Uh, okay. I'll give you the elevator pitch. So is it a two-story building or a 10-story building? Because I can give you the five-second picture of the 20. But uh, uh, yeah, briefly, as you said, you know, we all have these long titles, Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, Test, and Engineering. But what that what that really means is that uh, I view myself, and, and you'll hear the same thing from the captain, as really uh, S&T and research and develop, S&T, science and technology, and research and development champion across, you know, all of our Navy capabilities and being really a connector between our government technical communities, our industry partners, academia, and others to ensure that we are curating and moving forward the most important technologies and capabilities that the Department of the Navy need to be able to equip our, our sailors and Marines with the tools they have to gain the warfighting advantage. I love that because it really speaks to, I think, what we're trying to do on this podcast as well, which is to be the in-between and talk to both the technologists and the policymakers to bring everyone to the table. And it kind of sounds like you do the same thing, just like on the ground working in the Navy. Captain, why don't you give us a little elevator <laughs> pitch about yourself and Naval X, which is a really cool organization. Thank you. And I'll start off where I, I do think Ms. Johnson has the toughest job in the Navy. Um, it's just uh, such a huge challenge. Um, Captain Van Busker, Naval Aviator by trade. And after my, I served as a commanding officer overseas in Japan. And then after command tour, I had a unique experience of being a SecDef executive fellow where I got to spend a year and change in my hometown of Palo Alto at VMware, the software company, and got to see how things work out in industry. And then I was brought back in uh, to take over as director of Naval X. Naval X, the Navy's agility cell, fairly young compared to their uh, DOD Xs, as you call them, a couple years old. But our whole mission is to drive agility to the, across the Navy. What is that? Number one mission is helping guide stakeholders to delivering capability faster, being a platform for connecting across defense and academia, and to be a driver of culture and behavior change across the Navy with a focus on non-traditional technology and small businesses. So um, that's a, the quick elevator pitch on Naval X and a little about me and looking forward to the conversation. Well, I would love to kick it off with one of my favorite questions, which is what technologies or programs do you guys find the most exciting or most promising and how are they shaping the Navy for today and tomorrow? Well, thanks. That's a, it's a great question. And the fact is, I find all of it exciting. So the hard part is to try to distill this down to a, you know, just maybe a few relevant examples, because quite frankly, the mission of the, the Navy and the Marine Corps is, is broad. They 
operate in multiple domains. And so that necessitates a lot of technology for a lot of mission areas. So we got our hands in a little bit of everything. But to help kind of maybe provide some examples, you know, you mentioned earlier technology domains such as hypersonics and directed energy and the like, which we are certainly right in the middle of investing and maturing some of those as well as quantum and space. Yes, Navy's involved with space, cyber, and I know you've had some podcasts on artificial intelligence and machine learning, but that is such an exciting area and it's and it's really a force multiplier across the entire Department of Defense. So you'll hear it from us as well. For example, we're working on re-envisioning unmanned systems. Instead of just being an unmanned system, we look at them as intelligent autonomous systems. And so, yes, we have an acronym for everything, and we call that IAS, Intelligent Autonomous Systems. Now, this represents a confluence of the unmanned piece with artificial intelligence and autonomy. So with these IASs, we can achieve smaller, think small-scale capability. They're very agile, agile meaning that we can develop them and deploy them very quickly, and we can have many families of these capabilities that really complement what you think maybe is more of the traditional, you know, our large, powerful Navy with ships and destroyers and aircraft and that high-end war fighting. So these IASs, these small, agile systems, they perform cooperative roles with a system of operators and machines and algorithms. And the so what, so what is the so what for intelligent autonomous systems? It's that they are going to augment our traditional naval forces. And this really allows the warfighters to take on greater operational risk while still maintaining a tactical and a strategic advantage. So it really, again, I use the term force multiplier, brings a whole new domain in with the forces that we already have. And these systems will include unmanned, optimally manned and minimally manned platforms that can distribute operationally on land, in the air, and on or below the sea. Well, we had an episode a couple of weeks ago on surface and undersea autonomy. So we did get to get deep dive into that as well. So our, our listeners of the series should be really well-versed. Ben, what excites you? Well, you know, I'll take a step back. When I The way I kind of look at this at Naval X and maybe a little bit is my background from um, my time, the most AI and machine learning autonomous system deep dive I did was out in the valley with VMware, which is a lot of that is equated as is associated with cloud computing, which is something you don't think a lot. So I'm going to kind of look at it the same way as in autonomous systems. I think we sort of have this vision of what they can do. Uh, what I think is really exciting, especially when you get into what we can leverage, what's going on in industry, is using them for sort of the the less glamorous missions that we do in the Navy, but yet still take up a lot of risk and, and time and resources. So I'll use one coming as a helicopter pilot with logistics, right? Um, I think autonomous systems for logistics is huge, and there's great work going on in the commercial market. An example being, think of within a carrier strike group, where you have most of the ships within 20 to 50 miles of each other. And I can think of multiple times where I launched a crew in the middle of the night in bad weather because there was a critical part that was needed on one of the other ships. I think that's a prime mission that you could do with an autonomous system that would be less of a burden on air crew, uh, less of a risk for air crew, and you know less of a burden on the ship. I think that's an easy one. You can even get in some really cool ones like search and rescue. And, and you know with SAR, there's a lot of tools that unmanned systems could do uh, in rescuing folks that will oversee where you don't want to put a crew and maybe the weather is too bad, where, you know, surprise, usually when you get launched on a search and rescue mission, it's because the weather's bad. Uh, and having autonomous systems there could really do some great things. So, um, and then you look at even longer ones, maybe longer range logistics missions between strike group and the beach and land or, or and so forth. So I just think in, in logistics, there's just a huge opportunity with autonomous systems that gets me really excited. 
And the other one I'll say is, is I think when you talk about command and control and persistent ISR, which is uh, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance, back in my early days as a pilot, I spent many hours uh, being overhead with troops in contract, passing information to make sure our guys won. It is, as we've already seen an explosion in unmanned technology from the air standpoint, but I'd say in ISR now, um, it's really exciting what you can do across all domains, both surface, subsurface, stratospheric, and space. Um, it's just ripe for um, autonomy. And then when you talk AI, ML with the cloud computing and moving the data, it's just really exciting to me. Thank you both for joining us and, and for outlining some of the ways that technology can really lessen the risk and the burden of what really is, as you said, a mission with many different areas that calls for many different kinds of technologies. Could you give us a quick introduction to some of the ways the Navy approaches the acquisition of new technologies? What organizations or systems are really used to bring in new technology and how do they interoperate? So in my role working for the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Research, Development, and Acquisition, obviously the third letter of that is acquisition. So it's not just developing and maturing the technologies, but it's moving those technologies uh, into formal acquisition programs so that we can actually work with industry and, you know, build, manufacture, replicate, and sustain those capabilities. So, you know, in addition to pursuing, you know, long-term, we call it that long-term predictable funding, which is we're more familiar with uh, funding that we get from Congress for large weapon systems, such as aircraft and ships and weapons. That's kind of like oxygen for our programs. In support of the Secretary of the Navy's business reform initiatives, we are also aggressively pursuing acquisition strategies that help us develop and field new technologies very quickly and affordably. And there's a number of tools out there that already exist. One of them is the Adaptive Acquisition Framework which was put in place by the Department of Defense about two years ago. And it, it allows alternate pathways for things such as rapid development, emergent needs, software-intensive systems that really focus on what are the development activities that are precisely needed to make sure that we can actually deploy a system without going through what I would say is maybe a traditional acquisition lifecycle for a very complicated weapon system you know, which can, can take years. We're talking about things that we want to get out in two years or maybe nine months, or maybe we want to take something that's a very promising technology and deploy it right now and see how it operates in the field. So when I talk about accelerated acquisition pathways, that's really what we're looking at. I'm probably stating the obvious, but, you know, it's important because the pace of our adversary's technological growth combined with that urgent need for more advanced naval forces means we've got to move beyond traditional acquisition processes if we're going to deliver tactical advantage at speed. So as we discover and curate promising technologies through basic and applied research pipelines, at the same time, we are also driving to accelerate that the technical maturation of those technologies that we are discovering through what we call rapid prototyping and demonstration. And that's, again, where we can take something and put it in what we'll call as an environment, a test environment that, that replicates what we would expect to see operationally. And it takes advantage of modeling and simulation and uh, what we call, you know, kind of virtual twins of a real system where we can take it in a laboratory and, and run it through thousands of paces before we ever have to spend the big money to manufacture it. And that's really powered by digital engineering and modeling tools. So that's an area where where the Navy and the other services are really investing heavily in digital engineering 
and modeling tools so that we can really rapidly shake out technologies as they're maturing and determine what their relevance is going to be in, in what we call our operational environment. So to that end, the Navy really is pushing into science and technology efforts to advance digital engineering so that confluence of science and technology in the engineering world are really coming together in this digital environment. We're also examining the entire program life cycle when we acquire major weapon systems to identify cost reduction opportunities in design and manufacturing, for example, in order to drive down the cost and accelerate the time it takes to deliver something to the warfighter without sacrificing the quality or the integrity of those products. So again, digital engineering and rapid prototyping are huge enablers for us in order to be able to really accelerate from you know early concepts and discovery to something that we can actually put in the hand of the warfighter and give them that tactical advantage. I have a comment to follow up on that. When you talk about rapid acquisition and new tools to the trade. You hear OTAs all the time, but it's really amazing how often we still see folks in our workforce who aren't comfortable with it. So I think a significant role that we do at NavalX with acquisition of new tech is educating the workforce. And I I literally, as I'm talking, get a text from one of my rotationals. And what's great about NavalX is we're full of rotational folks, of which I have a couple people who are professors at Defense Acquisition University who are members of NavalX talking about, hey, we got some ideas that, you know, that we need to get into our curriculum now so we can really get these out the door into the workforce with examples of how they're working and being part of teams that normally wouldn't be thinking about adaptive acquisition. I have some professionals that can come out and then teach those folks how to use it and have the tools in their toolbox to really push the needle. So I just use that as an example of the role of education um, for the workforce to actually use these tools that we have. It's really powerful and important. And then, you know, I'll also take a point on bringing in new technology. The Naval X Tech Bridges are an example where, you know, working with the RTD ecosystem, we've set up what really they are is a bridge between the Navy and industry and academia because we realize that we have our traditional vendors. We have the folks that normally do business with the government. But how do we reach folks that normally wouldn't think about doing business with us? How do we reach the folks that, like when I was a fellow, startup accelerators in San Francisco, yeah, I'll tell you, not a single one of them had even really thought about doing business with DOD. And it wasn't like it was they had a, a moral problem with it. It really was it just hadn't even occurred to a lot of these folks to actually do business with us. So how do we get in these folks' ear in their local ecosystems to get them in the door to start thinking about doing work with us? And so what I love about our tech bridges is we're located, co-located with our Navy labs, which are warfare centers, uh, like Ms. Johnson said. So they have that tech transferability, which you know, from a legal standpoint means we can actually move tech in and out of the Navy and they have legal contracting and all the stuff you need to do business. So uh, what we've done is in a majority and many of our warfare centers set up these tech bridges, which are an open a door to get into the Navy ecosystem with our problems. And as uh, an example being why, why I think they're so great is I had some folks that I was working with out as a fellow. And as soon as I mentioned coming to the Pentagon, they were like, no, not going to do it. If you make somebody go through the hassle of coming to the Pentagon, I'm telling you right now, you're going to lose 60% of the folks who'd want to do business with you. So in itself, like in my location where I'm at in Naval X, you don't have to do a visit pass. You don't have to go through all of the drama of getting into the building, onto, um, into a federal building. You can very easily come into the door and start talking with folks in the government and how we can work together. And so that's what those tech bridges are there to do, be an entry point for focus on non-traditional folks. And, you know, why do I say non-traditional is I truly believe that you see the way technology is going, 
if we aren't working with those non-traditional folks that normally don't do business with us, we're not going to win. An example being, and as a musician, I think musicians know this, that if you're playing with the same band, listening to the same music, doing the same thing over and over again, you're not going to be innovative, right? You're not going to find that aha moment of something truly creative that's going to change things. It is like, hey, how do you go out? You're never going to find that great drummer if you're just looking at the same people all the time. So how do you get those folks in the door to think differently? And so that is the way we are looking at it. And then we are partnered with uh, Ms. Johnson's and through OpNav, which are for folks that aren't familiar, the people that set the budget and the requirements, and partnered with the Office of Naval Research, right? So we're really across the, the ecosystem, have these connections to folks. So if folks walk into the door with something, and they might not even know, like, you know, if there's a military application, at least we can have conversations with end users that are familiar with the naval acquisition ecosystem and at least steer them the right way. The most common complaint I get from industry is I don't even know where to start or who to talk to, right? And so I can answer that now. That tech bridge, that Naval X tech bridge, if you have no idea what to do to work with the Navy and you have some something you think that would be good, give us a call and walk in the door. Ms. Johnson, sort of having talked about one letter of your title, could we uh, talk a little bit more about sort of the development and maturation of technologies? Because, of course, not only, as I think both of you touched on, not only does the Navy bring in technology from the outside private sector, but it develops some in-house. Could you help us understand how the Navy develops new technologies through partnerships and through its labs? Absolutely. And I'll really just kind of bounce right off what Ben was talking about, because I think he he really hit the importance of the partnerships, because, you know, we do. We have a great laboratory environment within the Navy. It's pretty broad. As he talked about, we have these warfare centers. What we have, you know, we call it, we got names for everything. We call it the Naval Research and Development Establishment, or the NR&DE, and we really formed that so that we could formalize and codify the importance and the structures in terms of how we work across our naval laboratory enterprise. So that does, as Ben mentioned, we have 15 naval warfare centers across the country, and they touch all domains, air warfare, information warfare, surface warfare, and undersea warfare. We're also partnered with the Marine Corps Warfighting Lab, which is uh, down in Quantico, the Naval Postgraduate School, the Office of Naval Research, and the Naval Research Laboratory, which really are, are gems in basic and applied research. Every one of these organizations, in addition to maintaining and building their internal collaborations and partnerships, they continue to evolve and expand very purposeful partnerships with industry, academia, and other government agencies, as Ben just talked about. So, you know, one of the things I really want to point out, I said this laboratory infrastructure we have is massive. When you talk about 15 naval warfare centers, and they're sitting on government property where, you know, we have cases where, I'll give you an example, we have a 36,000 square mile sea range off the west coast of California that's fully instrumented. You know, we've got... Uh, a range where we fly aircraft that's over uh, a million square miles where we can drop live ordnance. And that's just a couple examples. So we have undersea ranges, we have land ranges, we have restricted airspace, and then we have this eye-watering laboratory environment that supports all those naval missions. But what's really important about that infrastructure when I talk about the laboratories and those facilities and test ranges is they really do provide a one-of-a-kind end-to-end capability that is accessible and gets used by small business, industry, and academia to mature and integrate and demonstrate emergent technologies that they have that they believe have promise and application to our naval environment and our naval mission. And this is so important because the, the Navy has invested billions of dollars over the decades 
in creating and sustaining and modernizing this, this massive infrastructure. It's not something that industry or academia could possibly replicate. So as Ben talked about, lowering the barriers of entry and partnering with small business, with academia, with he talked about non-traditional and, and our traditional defense industrial-based partners is providing this infrastructure so that we can all use it and partner together to really move these technologies along rather than any industry trying to replicate even parts of that infrastructure. So that availability of that infrastructure, those laboratories, those ranges, those test facilities to all our partners so that we can bring in their technologies is really crucial to how we help accelerate bringing in ideas and moving them through an operationally relevant environment and getting, getting them out in the field. The warfare centers are something that, you know, if I were if I were king for a day, I would rename them, <laughs> right? Because I found so often it's say what I say warfare center, people just don't understand. And I'll even say as an eight, you know career operator, I had no idea what a warfare center was uh, until I got in this environment. So um, I, I think telling the message is just absolutely key. And so how do we help that? So at least from the Naval Tech Bridge side, I'm always telling the story of this is what a warfare center is. They're a lab. Oh, okay. They're just a federal lab and what they bring to the table. I can't emphasize enough just how big of an organization we are. And so the way that we look at this from the Naval X perspective is how can we encourage sharing across the ecosystem between warfare centers? Um, because it is it is not just a Navy problem. I would say from my experience, even in a mid-sized company in R&D, it's just the human nature and the culture of you put your head down and get your work done. But what we try to do is if somebody, you know, within the warfare centers, we have our folks, you know, in, our tech bridges that are co-located, essentially talking to each other, right? And sharing what's going on in each of those labs so that if we get some sort of uh, industry partner that walks in the door, an example being, if let's say, for example, Newick up in Newport works generally undersea systems. If you're a local company there and you happen to be working on, say, a, you're a, a, a simulation software for a game or something and you're out of MIT, uh, and you think, oh, there's a, a warfare center there, but it doesn't really work on what I'm doing. What we've created is an, actually a way for communication across the R&D network. So if you walk into the door to our tech bridge, uh, they can go, okay, I may not be working on anything right here in this local uh, regional area on what you're working on. But you know what? I can talk to my other friends across the ecosystem and see if there's some work for you, say, an example being at NOC TSD uh, down in Orlando, which is a Naval Aviation Warfare Center training and simulation devices, right? And be like, hey, I got somebody in the door here up in Newport. There's some hot uh, hot shots from MIT. I think they've got something that you guys are looking for and you can connect them with the folks, say, down in Orlando because they have their own problem sets that they're trying to get after. So, you know, it's just, a, it's a huge system. And so for, you know, anyone out there listening, you know, we're really working to get people talking to each other and sharing information across it. And what we try to do is look at it from that really 10,000 foot perspective and see, um, you know, maybe if there's, you know, I've seen it at, at times where you'll have something being worked on in one place internally, and then you'll find out through just, you know, via the, the networks we've developed that there's a complementary system being worked on in another warfare center. Like Ms. Johnson said, sometimes they're being, they're doing R&D for, say, various organizations. Companies can use our warfare centers for R&D, and you can essentially find linkages which I think those, you know, those accidental collisions is where innovation happens, which um, I think is pretty exciting. Um, an example that I saw just recently is a company came to us via one of our tech bridges uh, down in Orlando that said we were making some video game software for driving cars using augmented reality and virtual reality. 
And one of them said, hey, wait a minute, you guys here in Orlando do aviation training and simulation and develop some software to use augmented reality for flying, as in formation flights. Instead of actually flying with another aircraft, you put on this headset that can go on your helmet and you can be flying the aircraft in the airplane with a augmented virtual wingman. Uh, which as a former aviator, I guess current aviator, just not flying, that's pretty powerful. When you think of what you can do from a safety aspect, from a man hours aspect of, you know, instead of using two aircraft, you can do one and still get the same level of training from. So it's just an, an example of, of really where these collision of ideas can happen between industry and our warfare centers. And so it's just really cool. And I'm excited to see where we take it and what we can do to really be, as Secretary Stephanie called Naval X, grease and glue, Right. We may see some connections, but how can you grease the skids in, in helo terms? How do you grease this and get these things moving through faster? And then how do you create glue between different ideas that normally wouldn't see each other? At CSIS, you know, our job is to also think big and draw those connections. And, you know, we're a small company of like 250. So I can't imagine working in something as big as the Navy and trying to bring all these people together and make those connections, knowing what everyone else is working on. It's certainly a huge challenge and something that reminds me a lot of some of the previous conversations we had with like Heather Pringle at AFRL, for example, sent something similar. And then we talked with Army Futures Command in the the prior episode as well, who are taking this interesting cross-domain approach to how they kind of deal with this problem too. You know, it's a huge organization. And um, somebody says, hey, I just talked to Commander so-and-so from a ship and they really want my software, so let's go do it. And it's like, dude, that's the Hilo ride to base camp, right? To get something fielded through this is, is, is climbing Everest. But what I'll say is we're going to do it with you. We started a new project called Innovation Navigators, um, a consulting company, BMNT, and Stanford University on actually going, how do we create the Sherpas, right? How can we train people in our workforce to look at the processing and actually guide stakeholders through to delivering value that involves a, method, a portion of in-house instruction and then practical application of actually us partnering with startups and helping them get through the innovation pipeline, which I just think is really cool and exciting. You referenced the pace of our adversaries' technological growth earlier, and do you feel that the nature of warfare is really changing? And if it is, how do we step up to meet that challenge through technology development, maturation, and integration? Yeah, I think that's a that's a really important question. And so the short answer is, do I feel the nature of warfare is changing? I would say the nature of warfare has already changed, and it is rapidly evolving. Both technology and the threats we face are evolving more rapidly today than they have at any point in history. In the kinetic world, when you think about weapons and whatnot, information and just the nature of of how warfare is creating disruptions worldwide. The innovation epicenters, they've shifted globally from being defense to commercial. So we're seeing an awful lot of the emerging technology coming out of the commercial world, not necessarily being let out of the defense world. So in this new era, you know, we've got to drastically improve the way we develop and operationalize and adopt disruptive capabilities that are going to exploit these emergent technologies, which in turn will change the way we fight. So, you know, to meet that change of the nature of warfare, and we've talked about this a lot already, but, you know, we've got to become more efficient and effective in how we field and modernize our current force structure. We've got to develop a strategic hedge to complement our existing large and high-end platforms. And, you know, we 
both Ben and I have talked a little bit about one of those strategic hedges really is these intelligent autonomous systems, you know, that augment and complement our force structure. Small tactical steps are great. They're important. They provide incremental improvements to what we have today. But at the same time, we've got to be moving forward. And I believe we are with these bold strategic commitments that are really going to simultaneously drive a very fundamentally new future. So again, I talked a little bit about a strategic hedge and and unman isn't the only one. But I think that when we talked about intelligent autonomous systems and how we are going to augment our traditional forces, that is part of how we're going to meet this challenge. And the other part is exactly what we've been talking about is we got to recognize that the complexity and the speed by which technology is changing requires, you know, this is a team sport. This is not the government working in a vacuum. And it's not just the government and our defense industrial base, although that partnership is necessary, it's not sufficient. And as Ben talked about, uh, non-traditional, more small businesses, commercial sector, everybody, this is an all-play we are in a state of great power competition where we really, quite frankly, don't have the time to spend a lot of time studying and thinking about it. We understand the problem. We have the most robust, incredible innovation ecosystem in the world here in the United States. And everything we're working on now is discovering and curating all those great ideas so we can solve our problems. This is really good because, you know, I'm going to say it. CNO said get real, get better. That's his new commander's guidance. Get real, get better. So we're going to get real here, all right? When I was a fellow, when I came back, I would brief the senior leaders at OSD, and I'd say, here's the deal, folks. There's a game going on right now, okay? And it's happening, and we aren't even like what? It's not like we as DOD are in the stands. Like, we're not even in the stadium. Like, we need to get our act together and start joining this ecosystem, what's going on here, because we are left behind. We are being disrupted. We're blockbuster, all right? Let's get after it. And so I think the absolute key is like, Michelle, we're going, we're trying, all right? But this is a multifaceted problem. And we talked a little bit before, and I talked about it in my TED Talk. There's like 10 things, and this is why I say Ms. Johnson is the hardest job in the Navy, right? To get anything to change takes like 10 things to move simultaneously that you don't have authority to do, right? So you say, what do we need to do? We, we really need to get with our congressional leaders and help them understand and tell the story that, like, this is a problem. And so, you know, when I talk to, to folks in industries, tell them what your pain points are working with defense and what we can do better because we need help. You know, we can, I can talk unmanned all I want. And Ms. Johnson, we can sit there and, and say for it. And then you know what industry says? Awesome. Show me the demand signal via where you're spending your money. Okay, pull the string on it, right? You know, we got to go in and make sure we are telling our story and make sure that we have Congress on board to help us with some of the challenges. Uh, one of the biggest complaints I get is with the PPB&E process, planning, programming, budgeting, and ex- execution in the Valley of Death, right? If you're in, in government, two years to get something done isn't that bad. But if you're a startup, 18 months is entirely too long, especially if you're venture-backed. And I think there's just some serious changes we need to do and make in how we do business. If we want to get the strategic hedge right, we need to fundamentally, at least in a way, change how we do things so we are compatible with the modern way that businesses work. And that's financial. That's with requirements. You know, we could get started on software. I, I've had a couple of companies say, you know what? The DoD hates computers. What? They hate software. Why do you say? Because the way we make it nearly impossible for new software entrants to work with us. And then I saw this firsthand in central engineering when I was uh, out of VMware. It's just really hard to re-engineer everything for the requirements we have. And, uh, and I understand we have reasons for doing so, but these are fundamental things that we need to do in reforms if we really want to get this right, if we're serious about winning. So um, that's my get real, uh, get better moment. There is just so much in what both of you just said that 
either are inspirational quotes that I'm writing down to remind myself and like <laughs> as I do this work, but also things that just have really pulled together some of these topics that we've talked about before, like the Valley of Death. That is something that we've talked about a lot on this podcast and the uh, the PPBE process, which luckily is getting reviewed, correct? I think that was one of something came out of the NDAA. I want to check in with the Navy and how you all approach, you know, building and guiding and maintaining STEM expertise and talent within the Navy, your pipeline, what does that look like? What are those processes look like? And then Ben, specifically for you, I know that you love talking about organizational change and decision making and, and better managing that process. And I would love for you to share with our audience some of the work you've been doing there and what you've been thinking. But we will we'll start with uh, with Ms. Johnson. Great. Thank you, because you're also hitting on actually one of my favorite topics, because, you know, we talk about technology and we talk about great capabilities. And of course, we have to have that. But but honestly, and I feel this with every bone in my body is our real asymmetric advantage is our people by far. I don't care what eye-watering facilities and laboratories we have and and what technologies are producing, if we don't have that motivated, focused, and ready, relevant workforce of people who believe in the mission and they're bringing all their great ideas and talent to bear, the rest of it just flat does not matter. You know, so when you think about the focus areas for naval STEM, you know, I, I will say this isn't surprising, but it's important. Of course, it's to inspire, engage, and educate the next generation of scientists and engineers and technology professionals and medical professionals. You know, that con confluence of biotech and the world we're living in and, and our security are really important. So I like to include that in the discussion. So I'd say we have a great Naval STEM program, but there's always room for improvement and this really is getting better. Our STEM employees retains and, and develops a real diverse civilian and military technical workforce, and I think that's important to understand, is that our STEM approach is both civilian and military. And what's so important is that we provide those hands-on learning opportunities, you know, teacher enrichment, scholarships, internships, fellowships, that really are going to inspire and cultivate a diverse pool of exceptional STEM talent. And there are so many examples I could provide, and I know it'll be great to hear from Ben because he's doing this with our next generation of incredibly talented workforce. But, you know, we really have been working with purpose to reimagine our naval STEM efforts. Admiral Selby, who is our chief of naval research, also serves as the naval STEM executive, and he is really driving some positive transformation in our initiatives. And I'm just going to give you one example because it, you know, it really talks about outreach in simple ways. Not everything has to be complex. So we've got the Naval Horizons series. And in Naval Horizons, high school and college students, they get to see a short video interview with naval experts in various cutting-edge fields, and they're talking about what they do. And then the student writes a brief essay on what they took away from this. And this is really important, how they, the student, can see this field impact the naval mission as they understand it. In other words, we're getting their ideas. In their essays, we are starting to see and get ideas from high school students, from college students, in terms of when they hear and what they see and what they're learning. And then after they submit that essay, they get a stipend and they get an opportunity to pursue internships and mentoring in the future. And that's just one small example. I would say a very crucial component to building and maintaining a world-class workforce is to ensure that we're reaching all parts of our nation. 
In other words, the naval STEM workforce must also reflect the diversity of American society. Through STEM opportunities and research networks to historically black colleges and universities and minority institutions, we are really growing out our outreach. We're establishing new faculty opportunities. We are increasing the number of grants. And we're really creating great pathways for high school students to earn technical degrees through scholarships, awards, and internship programs. And there is so much more going on in this space. But at the end of the day, it's really about we're a place that our next generation of inspirational leaders want to come and work. So for us, we want to ensure we are creating an environment where people want to come to work and they want to tell their friends and, and, and others that they go to school with, hey, this is a great place to come. You want to work here. You want to be part of the Naval Mission. I'll just say we love the interns program. We had five um, uh, historically back college university interns with us at Naval X this summer that were working on our software development. And it was just the best. It was such a great experience having him them here just for us, for ROI. But like Ms. Johnson said, now they're going to leave here and like something that they hadn't really thought about, like I might do some work with the Navy, right? This is kind of cool, this whole Fed thing. And then I'll, I'll, I'll kind of say when I, another example, and as a fellow, I went out to Berkeley and was talking to students in college, which some people are like, are you crazy? You're going in there wearing a uniform, the whole thing. I'm like, whatever, it's not 1968. But it's a, they had never interacted with it. And at the end of it, I had a bunch of people going like, you know what? Tell me more. I, I might do this military thing. So I've just made a note, get out is an underlying thing I said for us in the Navy. And I don't know why we do this as DOD. We be, tend to like, we've got this gulf, you know, the civil military divide. And it's a problem. And, and it is. It's not people don't want to work with us or they aren't. We need to get the word out and build relationships, these human interactive relationships. And and there's a lot of reasons why that's happened that, that aren't really worth getting into, but we can rebuild it. And I think that's incentivizing doing these sort of interactions. And even if it is like, say, us hosting an industry and academia day here at Naval X, it's building relationships um, and getting people educated on what it is we do and how to do it. Tools that we have at our disposal. I love the fellowships, right? I learned a ton as one. And we have a huge amount of folks. I, let me think. In our former tour with industry, we have a call. We have a network of 200 folks that are military people who've gone and done tours with industry like the Microsoft, Amazon, VMWare's of the world, Boeing's, Lockheed's, and we keep a call going, right? And with that expanded network. And so once again, we're out sending the message about who we are and what we do and working with these companies and realizing that we're a person, we're just like them, and the government isn't bad. So I will just say the more fellowships, the more outreach we can do, the better. I mentioned Innovation Navigator on teaching us how industry works. Uh, so when I say us, is our acquisition workforce. And then for the upskilling, I think that's huge. You know, one of the biggest complaints I get from industries are acquisition workforce, like, are not technical in nature. So I know we work with the vice CNO's office, uh, upskilling executives so that our uh, people like me, our 06s and above, don't just say sprinkle some AI on it, which uh, Ms. Johnson, I know, would laugh at because people would walk in the door and you wouldn't believe the pitches that people, if you don't understand any of it, you aren't able to make a decision. So we've got to upscale our executives. And so we're working with the vice CNO on some options for that. And then with our centers for adaptive warfighting. Uh, that's one of our line of efforts that's literally where we took human-centered design, Scrum, and Lean Startup, um, abstracted the core ideas and applied them to a military context. And we're going out and teaching the force how to use these skill sets and solve problems at their layup level. And we found a ton of um, positive feedback, net promoter score of 97, which I'm really happy on. So uh, that's one of the things we're doing is that that call, teach folks how this works. At Naval X, we use Scrum. It's how we run our meetings. We use uh, Scrum boards and we do, it's how we do business. 
So anyone that comes here is at least going to learn how to do it. And that's part of the journey, right? So building those connections and, and upskilling our report. Thank you both so much for joining us today. I really appreciate both of you taking time out of what is, as we're recording your Friday afternoon, to come join us and talk about naval acquisitions and some of the exciting things that the Navy is looking at in terms of technology. As our guest experts, we always like to finish if there's one short thing that our audience should take away from our conversation or one thing that maybe we missed today that you'd like to add. I'll leave you with a single thought and why it is so important that we get this right. Because the decisions and the investments that we make this decade will set the maritime balance of power for the rest of this century. My comment would be is, and we're in this together, um, CNO's comments when he mentioned Naval Exit ITSIC uh, down in Orlando said, hey, this is this experimental group, but we're going to figure it out together. This is together. This is being on the same playing field, and that's how we do it. So um, it's no more barriers. Let's take the best of America because we're going to need it. You know, pull us together and, and work with you as partners to figure out the right way. Thanks for being just fantastic guests for our final episode. I really, truly appreciate it. Rose, I thought that was a fantastic discussion, and I'm really glad we ended on such a good one for the season. There are several things that I wanted to pull out of this discussion that I either heard and they made me think of previous episodes we've had or that they were something new and exciting. The first is the autonomy discussion at the very beginning, but then kept popping up a bit. How excited they were about these intelligent autonomous systems that are smaller, they're more agile, they're easier to develop and deploy. We've had two autonomous episodes already you know, I was just, I was just really struck by like how far in they were, how they were thinking about autonomy, supporting missions like logistics, search and rescue, being able to go out into bad weather. I thought those were all really good examples of autonomy versus like sometimes we only hear about autonomy when it's in the actual, you know, not supporting the fight, but in the fight type of thing. What did you think? It seems like there's a lot of excitement around autonomous technology and a lot of it being developed both in and outside um, of government. Yeah, I kind of think it's like this, we're at that point that autonomous technology is maybe one of our less emerging and more emergent topics. And therefore we have a lot, we know a lot more, we know the use cases, we've tested these things. So it's you know widespread throughout DOD, but they also were talking about other technologies and things to bring in non-traditional actors and things like tech bridges, which sounds a lot like what we talked about on the Air Force episode when we talked with AFRL and AFWorks. So I think, you know, everyone has their own way of in- engaging the private sector and bringing them in. But I was also really glad to hear them talk about acquisition, about OTAs and about tools that already exist. This is something we've heard time and time again on the podcast that Congress does not need to create more authorities. We need to better train our acquisition officers to understand and feel more comfortable using the authorities that exist. Um, Things like OTAs. You are the acquisition expert here, so you, you tell me. Yeah, I think we came at acquisition and OTAs from a couple of different angles in this this episode. I think one of the ones that, that we circled around a lot was startups. And startups can be, as was called out, really valuable additions to the defense innovation base. They can have a lot of 
knowledge and expertise and, and access to technology that maybe is a great addition to or, or supplement to sort of the more traditional defense contractors. I just did a lot of work on the biotechnology space where a lot of that ecosystem resides in small and medium-sized enterprises. Definitely that can pose some challenges for a small business who is trying to, to navigate a complex acquisition process that can be lengthy. At the same time, there are challenges that I think are we maybe didn't get to in this episode, um, scaling being one of them. If you are a startup and you land a government contract, I think it can be daunting to figure out how you're going to scale up to produce a government-sized amount of X. But at the same time, we've seen some great symbiotic relationships develop there. I think we've seen in manufacturing COVID vaccines, for example, CISA stepped in and provided guidance on cybersecurity practices to startups who maybe had biotechnology expertise, but didn't have cybersecurity expertise. So to your to your point, I think the entire system has, has a lot of complexities, but that doesn't mean it is not worth navigating. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we've heard this time and time again. I remember we did a whole episode on software acquisition, which this conversation made me laugh because at the very end, Ben said something like DOD hates software. And I'm just like chuckling because it's basically the same thing that our guests on the software episode Enrique OT said, which is just like DOD hates software and they hate how software has to be acquired and how iterative it is and all of the updates you get and things like that. So for me, just like rehearing that from the government side and hearing some of these pieces about working with small businesses and reaching out and like bringing in these new technologies, the scaling issue are all things that I think we've covered, which it's good to know that, you know, we are not the only ones talking about these problems that people who are in the positions to change and to make these changes are also aware. One thing that really surprised me and I'm like, I'm on a tear about it. I didn't realize that the warfare centers were labs <laughs> and I'm in, why are they called warfare centers? If you're a small business, who's like, maybe not super excited about working with the government, but needs to, or has this great technology and a warfare center reaches out to you. I feel like that's not a great first impression. I feel like if your name was like something, something lab much easier to grab onto. They know who they're speaking with, what the capability in-house is. I just think this is a misstep that needs to be corrected. <laughs> I will say there are a lot of labs out there. They are not all called warfare centers. You even, even the Navy has the Naval Research Lab. So it is not a commitment across the board to working with something called the warfare center. If you want to work with the DOD, there's also I mean, there are other labs, there are FFRDCs, which are federally funded research and development centers. There are UARCs, which are university affiliated research centers. There are a lot of different ways that you and your technology can develop alongside the government that are not called warfare centers. Okay, but, um, but maybe we should think about renaming some of these warfare centers. We just went through a, a renaming exercise a few years ago. I guess last thing I think I had, and I'd love to hear if there's like anything else you really picked up on Rose is Joan said innovation epicenters have shifted from defense to commercial. And I, that struck me as very interesting, very true. Something we've heard from some guests, but at the same time, we've also heard from others that sometimes DOD is the only one or the government is the only one who can fund certain technologies or who has 
the funding and the use case to develop it. So I feel like, yeah, it, the epicenter has probably shifted. We've seen that a lot in space technology as well, but I don't think it's fully, you know, fully only in commercial. I think there's a lot of incredible things happening within the labs slash warfare centers, as well as in all of these, you know, government funded and led organizations. It's hard to argue that there's a lot of innovation happening in the private sector. I think one of the things that this episode pulled on is that there is innovation happening in government. And I would kind of go back to my earlier answer a little bit that in in an ideal world, there's a little bit of symbiosis between the two. Um, There's a little bit of room for, on the one hand, the private sector to go do its thing and go be innovative. And it's great. At the same time, I think government has a really important role to play. Um, The labs are a great example of this for some of the 6.1 and 6.2 funding for earlier stage projects that really isn't necessarily going to be ready by next quarter, isn't going to show a return on your balance sheet very quickly. And that steady investment and sort of longer horizon research, I think, is something that the government can really bring to bear that the private sector can struggle with. Yeah, that's a great point. What else? What was really interesting or maybe not in line with what you've heard before from the, the conversation? One of the things that I heard loud and clear, and I think we touched on, is this idea that the pace of our adversaries' technological growth is a challenge, as is sort of many, many different technologies from many different mission areas. What does that mean to you? To take our example of autonomy a little bit earlier and tease it out a little bit, there may be one general technology called autonomy, if you want to get very, very broad about it. The different applications he was talking about, you have um, autonomy for ISR or um, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. You have autonomy for search and rescue. You have, as you brought up in our pre-huddle, autonomy uh, possibly working in swarms. So working uh, different autonomous systems working together. These are, even if you you call it one technological group, many different applications of your core technology. Well, I think there was just so much to take out of that episode. As I said earlier, it was an incredible conversation with just brilliant guests who are really working on a lot of these issues that we've covered before in other episodes. So to me, it felt like a really good wrap up and like culmination of all of the things we've been doing on this podcast. Rose, thank you for joining me. Thank you for your expertise and insight and being the guest co-host. I really appreciate it. As we wrap up, I'd like to thank our sponsors, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Google, and Second Front Systems for their support of this series. Visit our show page as always at csis.org slash techunmanned for show notes, resources, more about our guests. Also follow us on Twitter or Instagram at techunmannedpod. And don't forget to like, subscribe, rate, and review this series. This is our last episode of season one. So we will not be seeing you in two weeks, but I will be active on the Twitter and on the interwebs, as they say, as the cool kids say. And so please feel free to reach out, as I said at the beginning, with any ideas for season two or things you want to learn about, things you liked about the series. I'm happy to talk and listen. So thank you so much for listening. 